I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Amos again, Amos chapter 5. It truly has been a week, a week of questions and heartbreak and more questions. Uh, The answers that come about really don't help us make sense of why anyone would open fire and rain down bullets on a parade. Yet it's interesting, as I thought about last Monday, we were with grandchildren in Iowa then, and yet I've been thinking about it all week, and I thought about the passage that we're in that had been planned long before that. I realized that in this passage, we still come face to face with some realities that we need to remember. No doubt, over the past week, we have heard yet again the word justice being used. We just prayed about that. And you know what? It's right to want justice for the victims of the 4th of July tragedy in Highland Park. And yet something we are going to see today, we're going to realize that the idea of what we think of of justice is just one facet of the biblical word justice. When I say justice, when you hear the word justice, we think of someone being held accountable for something they have done wrong to another. And there is truth to that. And yet, there is a broader view of that in Scripture that we'll see today. I would remind you yet again, as I have done time and again when there have been tragedies that have rocked our community, our nation, and our world, We need to be very careful how we view those. I think it's an error to start trying to figure out if this was in some way, shape, or form God's judgment. That is an error. I think it's an error to start thinking about what I would have done or should have done or could have done uh, or to think somehow I'm better than someone else because of situations like this. We need to be careful. Careful to say, well, I'm fully ready for every contingency. There was a great theologian named Mike Tyson who once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And and there's truth to that. I don't know how I would have responded. The northern kingdom of Israel was living in a prosperous time. They had become very proud of their accomplishments, very proud of their fortifications, proud of their military, proud of their economy, proud of the way they were living their lives. And their pride had blinded them to a lot of things, mainly God's order of things. Their pride had uh, caused them to see themselves as being better than those who were less fortunate. So, in fact, since they saw themselves as better than the poor, they, they took advantage of them, and they actually oppressed them. They, they built some of their fortune on the backs of taking advantage of the poor. We saw some of that last week in the first part of Amos chapter 5. And we ought to always keep in mind that when we talk about the poor in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there is a three part group to that. It's the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. Those are the poor. When God tells us in the Old Testament to where to love our neighbors ourselves in the book of Leviticus, that comes on the heels of 
taking care of the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. That trio is used throughout the Bible. The people of Israel cared about their wealth. They cared about their luxury. And they fully believed that because of that, because of what they owned, because of what they had built, they could handle anything. And, and, and here's, here is today's sermon in a sentence. If you want to check out after this, hopefully it'll be enough, right? When I am all about me, regardless of my external practices of faith, I will ultimately pay a price for my arrogance. When I am all about me, regardless of my external practice of faith, I will ultimately pay a price for my arrogance. We're in Amos chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? It is apparent, as Amos is in the middle of what we would call a lament, it's apparent that some of the people of Israel were saying, bring it on. I am ready for the day of the Lord. I've got my money. I've got it all secure. I've got my things. I've got a good house. I've got security. I've got people. Bring it on. I can handle the day of the Lord. Whatever you want to throw at us, Lord, I can handle it. And in essence, what Amos is saying here is simply this. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, we see that term, the day of the Lord, sprinkled throughout the Bible. It has really two kind of thrusts. One is, yes, God's judgment on those who have been what we would call his enemies, those who have done, oppressed his own people. That's part of the day of the Lord. But the other part of the day of the Lord is God calling his people to account. God calling his people to answer for the way they have lived their lives. And the kingdom of Israel was so far away from what God wanted that Amos is saying, whoa, hold on. Those of you that say, bring it on, I can handle it. Because you don't realize how awful that time will be for someone who's not following the Lord. It's going to be difficult. He says it's going to be like pitch darkness. And then he gives this little scenario here. He says the day of the Lord is going to be like... And I think there's a little humor in the prophet here. It's going to be like this guy that, that is running from a lion. And he's running from this lion and he runs into a cave and he gets in that cave and he sits there and he's going, oh man, wah, there's a bear. He runs out of the cave. He runs and he finally makes it home. And he gets home where he's safe and he's secure. And he's like, oh, okay, I made it home. And he rests his hand on a wall and a poisonous snake bites him. It's like you're not going to get away from it. No matter what you do, you can't escape God. You can't escape his notice. We can't hide from God. And sometimes the way we hide is by doing the right things without an internal change of who we are. 
if that's hard for you and me to understand, think how hard it was for the Israelites who were very smug in their lives. Why would the day of the Lord be a problem for us? We're living in great times. God's not going to harm us. We're his children. We're descendants of Abraham. And Amos just says, be careful what you wish for. But then he goes on. And he starts talking about the way that they were conducting themselves in worship. Pick it up in verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile. Beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name God Almighty. The point Amos is making here is simply this. True worship is to impact everyday living. God's language is strong here. You could never accuse God of kind of holding back. I hate, I despise, I cannot stand. Your, your, your services are a stench to me. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to accept your offerings. I have no regard for that. You know, he is, that's strong language. And you say, why is God's language so strong here? Well, let me put it in a 21st century phrase. It's simply this. What you and I say and do in church should be reflected in how we live Monday through Saturday. You see, I am still in the presence of God when I walk out of this building. I am still in the presence of God when we close the door and it's just me and my family at home. I am still in the presence of God. And if what I say and do here is not lived out consistently there, God says, what you did here makes me sick. And I think, whoa, that's harsh. It's not user-friendly. If I praise God for his justice, righteousness, grace, and mercy on Sunday, then I am obligated by God to love those around me and to pass on his justice, righteousness, grace, and mercy to others. The bottom line is, if I love God, I will love my neighbor. It will flow from me. I won't be able to stop it. It'll be a part of me. I get it. We're all flawed. We all fail. We all struggle. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong. But the difference is the person who loves God admits it and takes responsibility for his or her actions and tries to correct them. And the key verse in this section is Amos 5.24. 
And it's interesting, Amos 5.24 comes in the context of worship. God says, I don't like all, I, I, I hate all this stuff. I hate all the things you're doing. Here's what I want from you. And remember in Amos chapter 5, in the first part, we talked about how they were oppressing the poor, how they were, the poor would go and glean their, their, their crops from the field. And then as they were leaving the crop, the, the owner would stop and tax them on what they had gleaned instead of giving it to them and, and building their, their wealth that way. And if they couldn't pay it, they would just take the, the grain from them. And so all of that kind of comes to a head here. And God says, let justice roll on like a river. The prophet is pointing out the futility of your worship and the futility of following rituals that are laid out in the law is a sham because it's not flowing from you in true justice. The day of the Lord is coming. The only way to avert it is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. What do those terms mean? Justice like a river. When you and I see the word justice, we've already talked about it, we, we see somebody getting what they deserve, right? They did the crime, they got to do the time. We, we get that. But God uses that word in a broader sense. Justice not only involves punishment, but it also involves Fairness, or we could even use the word equity if we want. The poor were not being treated properly. They, the, the rich were living their lives of privilege and ease and not taking care of those God said you're to take care of. That's not justice. That's not fairness. What the prophet is saying here is if you want God's blessing, then your life should reflect God's character. It should reflect that fairness of God with all of our dealings. It should reflect God holding all of us accountable for our actions. It's about everyone being treated with fairness. At any time when anyone is treated as a lesser, anytime anyone is seen as less deserving, anytime anyone is seen, is made, is limited in their choices for reasons not of their own making, that's injustice. Injustice is treating someone else less than what you want to be treated. See, you and I can't stand here and sing, here I am to worship, and walk out the door and ignore someone who's struggling. It doesn't work in God's economy. I was thinking about this a lot over the last week. I've been thinking about it a lot for a long time, and it was interesting as I thought about it. I was drawn to the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave on August 28, 1963, famously known as the I Have a Dream speech. And why I was drawn to that is because he quotes this verse. And I actually went and read the speech again because I wanted to read it and say, did he use it properly? And the fact of the matter is, he applied this verse very accurately in that speech. See, because prior to doing this, quoting this verse, he says, and I, I will paraphrase here, he says, you know, people ask us, 
when will it be enough? When will you be satisfied? And he says, we won't be satisfied until the, the black person can stop at a hotel and, and get a night's rest and not be turned away because of their color. We won't be satisfied until we are treated with fairness in every area of life. And he went down. And then he said, and let justice roll down like a river. And he was applying that properly. Justice says every person should be given the same opportunities, should not be judged by how they look or by, by how they speak or by where they're from. And that's what that was happening. And that wasn't just happening with somebody out there. It was happening with their own people. We each have to look around our world and our community and say, what is my role in justice and righteousness each day? Now, justice and righteousness in the Bible seem to go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. He says, let righteousness like a never-ending stream. That's who God is. God is perfectly balanced in his justice and his righteousness. And, and to try to understand that, one scholar put it this way. He said, if you want to try to get nuances from those words, then justice tends to point to the order of the society, where righteousness tends to point to the relationships and being moral and ethical and having integrity in my dealing with other human beings. You have to have the two together. By the way, these qualities are not just good recommendations. They're not things that God says, this would be a good idea. I mean, if you don't want to do it, we're still good. No, this is a command. God doesn't hold back here. And if he's not holding back from the Israelites, he won't hold back from you and me. Now I get it. I get it. Life is not fair. I get it. Human relationships are messy. I get it. Lives are broken. I get it that people at work or in my neighborhood or even in my own family can be unfair. They can be egotistic. They can even be abusive. But as I thought about this passage, it kept coming back to one thing. It, it, it begins with me. You see, I, when I went through my counseling training years ago, my professors were, were very, very adamant about one thing. They would remind us all the time, you're getting all this training, you're learning about people, you're learning how people work, you're learning about human dynamics, but never think that when you walk into that counseling room that you can change anybody. You can't change anybody anybody. That helps me a lot as a pastor because I know I can preach and I can study all week and come here and preach and, and just lay it out on the line, but I can't change you. And we talk to couples in premarital counseling. We tell them, do not go into that relationship thinking you're going to change your spouse. That is not going to happen. It's not going to work. You and I can't change anybody. We can change ourselves we are the people that are responsible for ourselves god is telling his people you're headed for a rude awakening and yet you could change 
you might be able to avert it. And then he goes on and he reminds them of their history. And this question asked in verse 25 is a question with a presumed answer. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? And sadly to say, the answer is, well, no, we really didn't. It's amazing when you go back and we, we think that because we, we read Exodus, Leviticus and all the laws and everything. But when they got to Kadesh Barnea, they sent the 12 spies in. They came back. Two of them went, let's go get them. And 10 of them went, whoa, they are giants. And the people went, ah, we're not doing this. You get the impression, especially when you get to the book of Joshua, that they kind of stopped doing the stuff. In fact, in Joshua chapter 5, before they crossed the Jordan River, all of the men had to be circumcised because they hadn't obeyed the law. And then they waited till they healed and then they went across. But you know what? It's even worse. You get to the end of Joshua. After they've taken the land, Joshua starts out that he's an old man. He gives a speech in chapter 23 and chapter 24. And listen to these words in chapter 24 of Joshua. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What does that tell you? They kind of hung on to them. They had hung on to those old gods. Maybe, maybe we're going to need them down the road. Maybe, maybe Yahweh's not enough. I mean, he's good. He parted the Red Sea. Good stuff. We had manna. We had quail. We got stuff we needed to eat. It's good. But, you know, I'm just going to keep a little insurance policy right here. God says, it's led you the wrong directions. What have you done? You've lifted up a shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God. Israel was repeatedly doing worship type things without impact. In fact, they had drifted into pagan worship. God says, okay, I, I warned you. You're going to go into exile. And they did. And in fact, the northern kingdom of Israel not only went into exile, they, they eventually got, get called throughout history as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The, the, you can't trace your history back to one of these tribes. So what does that mean for us? Okay, really good, Pastor Scott. Nice little history lesson there. That's nice. God is still a God who wants our lives to reflect what we say is in our heart. God wants us to work toward consistency. You know what? Our culture would like to see that too. You and I will not have an impact on the culture if we live hypocritically. We say one thing in church, but we're somebody else out there. It's not going to have an impact on you and I are not going to have an impact on the culture if we go the other way and we just live our lives just like they do. There is no difference. We do everything the same way they do. There's absolutely no difference. You know, if you can fudge a little here and cheat a little there and not fully give your report there and you get by with it, you know, that's not going to have a difference. Well, we also won't have an impact in our culture if we totally withdraw from it. If we say, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be completely isolated, 
And no, God wants us to live in the culture. The, the, the old ad, the, the statement is being in the world, but not of the world. That means, yeah, I, I, I know how things work. I can, I can sit down and talk to somebody about Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you know, what's going on. I know that. I know what's going on in the news. I'm aware of it, but I'm following Christ. And so there is a little bit of a difference that makes people curious. You see, what I do here every Sunday should make an impact on how I live all the way through Saturday until I come back here on Sunday, get together with God's people. I'm encouraged by them. We sing, we pray, we listen to God's word, and we get encouraged so we can go back and live it again. Well, Amos isn't done. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, Amos speaks directly to complacency. And I would just say, I think the point here is complacency leads to disaster. Amos begins, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to, the, to great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie in beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches and dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. You know, it's easy to get complacent. We all have a propensity to get complacent, especially when things are going well. I'm going to confess something here. I preached this sermon series 16 years ago, in 2006. Some of you are going, yeah, yeah, we've heard it all before. Yeah. I want to read to you. I, I keep all my notes because I've, I, there's research that doesn't go out of style, but there's some research that goes out of style, and you have to update. But let me just read from my notes 16 years ago. I said, think about it. How many of us really gave a whole lot of thought about the price of gasoline three years ago? in 2003. Some of you have to remember that. It was not really a hot topic except when they switched grades for the summer blend. But then there was a bump in price. All in all, we did not give a lot of thought about our driving habits. We simply drove from point A to B. We were, in, in essence, complacent. But now, we have gas at $3 a gallon. It could go higher. And all of a sudden, we're shocked into reality. Our president, and that was President Bush at the time, George W., our president talks about the need for alternatives. That's not a new topic, but as long as things are going well, it was just what the environmental types talked about. We got complacent over the price of gas. Well, you did, it's worse now. Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, I remember I was telling kids, and young people, oh, I remember back when we were upset because it was going up to 55 cents a gallon, you know. It, we drift into complacency. We get these senses of false security. And complacency leads to laziness. 
complacency is really a form of self-centeredness. And it affects everything. Israel had become so complacent, and, and, and here it's described by the prophet. And first God says, don't, don't get complacent. Are you any better than all these other nations? Kalna, Hamath, Gath were, were uh, representative of other great nations that got complacent, thought they had everything, and all of a sudden they're not there anymore. Their false sense of security came that they didn't, they didn't care if they were headed for trouble. They didn't listen. It can't bother us. My house is secure. I got a storm shelter. We're good. Israel was more concerned with their beautiful furniture and their great food. They dined on choice lambs and fattened calves, maybe ancient Wagyu beef. They strummed away on their harps like they, they had concerts. They went to concerts. They, they were just so enjoying it. They were drinking wine by the bowlful. That was saying they were, they were enjoying all of the niceties of life. They were living the old show. They were living the lifestyles of the rich and famous. They were enjoying everything that God had given them. Oh, aren't we wonderful? And God's saying, you're indulging, but you're not doing the things that you need to do. You see, I've said it before, it's not wrong to have nice things. It's not wrong to make good money. It's not wrong to have wealth. But when the focal point of my existence becomes my comfort, my luxury, and my wealth, to such a degree that I'm not generous, to such a degree that I don't help those who are less fortunate, then I'm crossing the line with God and he holds me accountable. And in a sense, God is saying to these people, you gotta wake up and smell the coffee, folks. Your wealth and your luxury and your comfort will not save you from the day of the Lord. They're not going to somehow give you a free pass. R.G. Letourneau is a man that all of us owe a debt of gratitude to. At one point in time, he had over 299 patents. On what, you say? Well, when you drive down Geneva Road and it's nicely paved, you can thank R.G. Letourneau. He designed what we now call a bulldozer. He designed and invented what we call a steamroller. He designed uh, most of the earth-moving equipment or the, the, the original design for most of the earth-moving equipment that you see when you see a housing development go up. If you see a crane, you can thank R.G. Letourneau. He patented so much. When he was 30 years old, he was in deep debt and penniless, and his sister, who happened to be a missionary, got in his face, as only sisters can do, and told him that it was time he started taking God seriously. And he listened to her, which is rare for a brother. And he got, as it were, on his knees, and he said to God, if you will be my business partner, I will honor you. 
At the peak of his career, R.G. Letourneau was giving 90% of his personal income to places and things and organizations and all that would help move the gospel of Jesus Christ out. And he was living off of 10%. Now, I'm not asking you. Don't even hear me asking you to do that. What I'm saying is, God wants you and me to think about our dependency. What am I depending on? I've quoted, mentioned it before. It's a book titled God and Money, How We Found Financial Freedom at Harvard University, at Harvard Business And the two guys that write that book talk about their lives. They were living well. One guy was a saver, and he was just saving everything. And they weren't going to have children until they had X amount of money in the bank. And then they were going to do this. And and he was just into saving. And, And he said, the reality is we were worshiping our savings, not our God. The other guy and his wife, they were into experiences. and They were making good money on Wall Street, and uh, so they would, they would save up and then have an experience. They would fly over to somewhere in Europe just for dinner at a certain restaurant and then fly back home. And they said, you know, while we're young, we want to have all these experiences. And he said, we were worshiping our experiences. And they began to say, you know, maybe the question we need to ask is not how much do I have to give? Maybe the question I should ask is, how much do I need to keep? In other words, what are my needs? Not my wants, my needs. And after my needs are met, how can I use the rest to bless God? So maybe it's more than 10%. Maybe it's even more. But the question is a sense of dependency. You see, the people in in Israel were dependent upon their luxury. They were dependent upon their things. They were dependent upon their wealth. And that dependency then caused them to be complacent. When my dependency is on God, then my dependency is on someone who I trust to take care of me. And I'm no longer complacent and relying on my things. I'm saying, God, how can I use my things for your honor, for your glory? How can I use the things you've given me to help someone else? How can I use the the income you've given me to bless someone else? The old ad is the more you own, the more it owns you. The more you have, the more you grow in pride. God says, where's your dependency? Because when that dependency causes you to be complacent, then it can be disastrous. Verses 8 through 14 continue with a strong language. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out to the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and smash the small and the small house into bits. Do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. 
You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, Did we not take Karniam by our own strength? But the Lord Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. God doesn't hold back. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. God actually hates pride. The nation was proud of what they've accomplished, and that was bound up in the fortresses they had built. There was a sense in which the product of their pride was that self-security. And God reminds them in a cryptic way that their pride will not rescue them. He uses two uh, the word picture of a fortress in which everybody inside is dead and there's no use crying out to the Lord because there's no one left to save. The fortress didn't hold up. They were proud of administering their lives and how they did it. And God asked questions that really border on being absurd. Horses don't gallop on rocks. Now, I'm not, I'm, I, I grew up in Kansas. I've ridden a few horses, not a lot. You won't find me in any westerns, but they're gingerly as they, ging, as they step on rocks. They don't gallop on rocks. You don't go and try to plow up rocks. I know a little more about this. My grandfather had a huge garden. When you have 11 kids, you need a huge garden. And when we would go in the summer times to West Virginia to visit my granny and grandpa, one of the things that I got to do like how was this vacation, is I got to go out with my uncle, who's only three years older than me, and a wheelbarrow, and we would walk through the furrows of the garden and we would pick up rocks. So that when Grandpa got his roller tiller to go through the garden, he wouldn't hit rocks. You don't plow rocks. But see, pride so blinds us that we sometimes make stupid decisions. And yes, I said stupid. And what's saddest is when we're so prideful and we make foolish decisions and then we don't even admit that our decisions were wrong. We blame somebody else. We, we, we did it because they made us do it or it was their fault. And, and God says, that's where you are. And God warns us that's not who we're to be. And he says, here's what you've done. And you notice the, the reference back to 524. You have turned justice into poison. God says, let justice roll down like a river. But that's a river of refreshment. That's a river of, of, of life, as it were. It's not a river of poison. You've taken justice and you've turned it into poison. You've taken righteousness and you've turned it into bitterness. That kind of pride led them to celebrate themselves. These two places in verse 13, Lodabar and then Karnaim, those are victories that the army of Israel had won some battles. But instead of giving God the glory, instead of looking back and saying, look how God worked there, there, and there to bring us here, they went, look how great our armies were and how powerful they were. And look how much we did on our own power to make this happen. God says, you're going to end up in the valley of Lebo Hamath. By the way, that word Lodabar, it actually means nothing. So in a sense, God's saying what you won was nothing.
when you and I think we've won victories in life and we only give ourselves the credit and we only praise ourselves and we only pride ourselves, we've achieved nothing in God's economy. I've said it so many times, it's almost a cliche, but everything we have is from God. But God promises when we are proud, when we are arrogant, when we give all the credit to ourselves, he will bring us down. And what we're to do is humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord. He'll lift us up. We need to look in the mirror at ourselves. And it's okay to say, hey, I do X, Y, and Z well. That's okay. That's good self-assessment. I hope you know two or three things that you say, I do these things well. But then the next thing should be, I do them well, because should not be, I do them well because, you know, I went to school and I trained and I practiced and all. You may have done all that, but I do these things well because God has enabled me to do these things well. God is clear and consistent And his message remains the same. It was the same from a farmer 2,800 years ago. It was the same through the life and ministry of Jesus. What God wants is for you and me to learn what it means to depend on him. God is the creator God who has done all that is necessary to open a door of relationship for you and me to have a relationship with him. Amos had no clue what would happen some 750, 800 years later on a hill called Golgotha. But he was aware of this. God had called those who said they were his children. He wanted them to depend on him, to follow him, to seek him as the true source of life. Amos was aware that God cared more about one's heart and obedience than he cared about any religious ritual or sacrifice. And Jesus comes along and he reveals that Amos was right. And that's what God wants for you and me today. He wants us to depend on him. The the cross stands as a symbol of dependency. You see, I can't earn my way into relationship with Christ. I can't earn my way into being adopted into God's family. I can't buy my way into God's family. I only come by faith. And that's true justice because everybody comes to God only by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I was talking to somebody once and I said there are Many, many, many paths to Jesus. So many people come in different ways to Jesus, but Jesus said there's only one way to the Father. And we all come the same way. That's justice. That's God's justice. Because none of us get a leg up. I'm not going to be in heaven in in, in some kind of a little enclave of all the pastors over here. Like, yeah, we put it, we worked every Sunday, people. What'd you do? You know, I'm not, and you could say, yeah, but you just worked one day a week. You know, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be with you. 
and you're going to be with me. And you know what? The Revelation tells us that when we put our faith in Christ and we stand before the throne, it's not just going to be all the people that look like me. It's going to be the kaleidoscope of the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Amazing. I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to, the potlucks in heaven. You know, I mean, all the, the variety of food, you know, I mean, come on. You know, but it's just, it's that reality that we're all there together because we all came through the same path, and that is through Jesus to the Father. This morning, I just want you to ask yourself this. Upon whom are you truly depending? And, or upon What? Are you truly depending? And is it coming through for you? Is the one I'm depending on able to foresee everything and guide me in the right direction? Is that which I'm depending on truly satisfying the deepest need of my soul? We serve God who satisfies the deepest needs of our soul. And he reminds us that when I am all about me, Regardless of my external practice of faith, I will ultimately pay a price for my arrogance. But you know what? When I am about Christ and when I humble myself for him, I will ultimately receive God's reward for my faith and dependence. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for reminders that are sometimes hard to hear. Hard to study, hard to preach, but reminders that we need. May we walk away from here today with that reminder that when we rely on you, you take care of our needs. And you help us adjust and define our needs so that they truly are what you want. May we learn today again dependency upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.